What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. This one I'm really excited about. Uh, it's Cramping Science with Kevin Miller, and I got my friend Mike McKinney. Uh, he's going to be asking most of the questions, but it's something that I feel like I really need to learn about. I really need to bust some of the myths. And, you know, um, I have some products here that we'll be talking talking about throughout the series of Cramping Science that may help. But in, from kind of our pre-conversation, I'm, I'm learning that a lot of it doesn't even have to do with hydration at all. And so I'm excited to learn about some of that. And so Mike is going to be asking the hard or, or I guess, scientific questions. And I'll be asking some of the dumber questions or the questions that more apply to what can I realistically do in a low-income uh, secondary setting because I can't control what the kids eat. I can't really do that. So, so that's kind of the whole conversation we're going to be having through the Cramping Science series. This is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science Miller because we are talking with Kevin Miller. And again, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science Miller. And so it'll have any of the, the resources that he mentions, links, and some of the questions and uh, easy, easy way to get a hold of both Kevin and Mike as well as myself. So without much further ado, I want to start with this. Um, Kevin, Mike, it, either one, let's start with a definition of a cramp. What is a cramp? Is there a scientific definition? I'm going to send that to Kevin. Yeah, sure. So, uh, uh, muscle cramp as we technically talk about them in the literature, uh, when it comes to athletic trainers and clinicians, usually we're talking about exercise associated muscle cramping, which is very different than what you might see in the literature when people talk about like nighttime cramping or menstrual cramping or those types of things. So exercise associated muscle cramping, which I think is the focus of this podcast is defined as an involuntary, painful, sudden contraction of a skeletal muscle in an otherwise healthy person, meaning they don't have any underlying general medical conditions or medications that they're taking uh, that occurs during or shortly after exercise. All right. So we, you can kind of go ahead and uh, take it away there, Mike. So I just want to okay. make sure we're kind of all talking about the same thing. So, Yep. I always but think that's really helpful. Yeah, a lot of terminology issues when it comes to studying cramping, like ticks, spasms, contractures, uh, even heat cramps, I would argue is an inappropriate term for what we typically see with exercise-associated muscle cramping. and um, So part of the confusion stems from all of these bad terms out there, even stitch inside or Charlie horses are oftentimes used to describe muscle cramping, but they're all inappropriate. So, Yeah, and I always feel like it's a good um, place to start with definitions because a lot of the research we read, um, depending on the author, journal, and things like that, they have ways of defining what we're talking about, and that doesn't necessarily translate to layperson interventions. So I think a good place to go from there is when we're talking about what's actually occurring at the muscular level. We um, Would you say that's, in your opinion, is that the first place a muscle cramp is probably starting, or is it more up the chain from a neurological standpoint? I would say that probably muscle cramping originates in the, the central nervous system. Now, there's quite a bit of a debate still kind of going on in the literature about where exactly and what contribution do uh, 
that occurs at the muscle level versus the neuron level versus the brain level. And so we're still trying to sort all of that out. There's, there's good arguments for a central origin. There's good arguments for a peripheral origin. There's good arguments for uh, the muscle origin. And so I think you got to take more of this global perspective. I think obviously they're all three involved. And so um, when we talk about where does the cramp start, uh, I tend to fall more on the camp of it's probably more of a central origin that is kind of taking in all of the feedback from your peripheral afferents and uh, ultimately affecting alpha motor neuron control and excitability and those types of things. So I think let's let's take that a little bit further. So I think a lot of people when they approach cramping, they start at the very end and work backwards. But I think that's actually useful because I think um, I remember this from class, like it's you ask the obvious question, what's the most obvious way to stop a cramp? We stretch. So I think let's start from if we're stopping a cramp with stretching, what um, what mechanism is at play and maybe work backwards? Because I think that's honestly how most athletic trainers approach this. Right. So when you read the, the cramping literature, there's a really complex physiological rationale for why static stretching relieves inactive, acute exercise associated muscle cramping. And uh, people like Dr. Martin Schwellness would argue that when you stretch a muscle, you increase Golgi tendon organ activity and Golgi, Golgi tendon organ activity when that increases tends to inhibit the alpha motor neuron. So the idea is that the cramp originated because the alpha motor neuron became too excitable and is sending too many excitatory messages to the skeletal muscle. And as a result, the skeletal muscle cramps. And so if you can increase Golgi tendon organ activity, hopefully you can rebalance that alpha motor neuron and you can inhibit the excitatory messages coming from it and therefore stop the cramping. Um, I think that's a very complex mechanism for why static stretching works. I think I tend to fall more in the lines of a muscle can't cramp if it's not allowed to shorten. And so when you are stretching a muscle that is in cramp, you are physically separating the contractile proteins and no longer really allowing actin and myosin interaction to occur. And when you don't allow that to occur, we know that you can't cramp. And so there may be something to the whole Golgi tendon organ inhibition, increasing, et cetera. Um, but I tend to believe it's probably more of a physical mechanism that explains why static stretching works so quickly. Yeah, I think that I think that's a very good point because I think a lot of people um, just um, like Jeremy said, there's a lot of things out on the market, a lot of information. But at the end of the day, when you're on a football sideline, <laughs> you've got these and you've got no time. So it's like, how do we fix that? So I think this kind of gets at to like when we drift up the chain, it's like, okay, if I'm stretching an individual in the third or fourth quarter, um, why do you think it always happens in the third or fourth quarter? Why is it never kickoff and someone just drops right off kickoff and has a calf cramp? Well, I would say sometimes actually it does happen at the beginning of games. Um, it's rarer to see them occur very early in exercise, but we do have reports of exercise associated muscle cramping happening in people very quickly out of the gate. Um, but yeah, the data would support the observation that cramping occurs near the end of races or the end of competitions. And so uh, this is something that uh, both camps for why cramping occurs would say supports their theory of either dehydration causes cramping or fatigue causes cramping. And so in both instances, you would say, okay, after a prolonged period of time, dehydration can accumulate 
and there's more fluid loss on the other side. The other camp says, well, as more time passes, people become more tired. And if you get more tired, then fatigue accumulates and causes that central nervous system imbalance that is thought to cause cramping. And so, uh, again, I tend to look at the literature as a whole. And when we look at all of the literature, I would suggest that that end of quarter four observation is probably due to fatigue and other factors accumulating to coalesce into cramping. Yeah. So, and I think that's kind of what um, you can probably see where I'm going with this <laughs> line of questioning is there's a lot of, um, I think, assumption around what we should do to treat and not necessarily what is, um, as you've kind of said, supported by um, scientific research. Now, I don't think this necessarily has to be the, um, like an evidence appraisal necessarily. I don't think we have to go through that whole process because that's a podcast on its own. But um would you say, um, from an evidence standpoint, I, I guess let me back up a second. I didn't think I phrased that correctly. So looking through, um, I think you mentioned like the hydration and possibly diet factors that people sometimes hinge on. Um, what's the evidence that you're aware of to support um, that type of theory versus um, the central nervous system theory? Because I think the central nervous system theory, in fairness for a lot of us, unless you take dedicated study in those realms is that's a lot to sift through. I've read the research myself and I've had to <laughs> spend some time educating myself outside of my own education to understand it. But I think some of the other research you mentioned from via wellness, some of the diet stuff is right in line with what athletic trainers are taught um, in school. So what's the evidence on the diet and the hydration side of things? Yeah. So great question. So, uh, to kind of understand the evidence for the theory, you kind of have to first understand the theory. So the dehydration electrolyte imbalance theory would say that when an athlete exercises and they uh, sweat, they're going to lose both fluid and electrolytes in their sweat. And the idea is that when we lose so much sweat, uh, there is a contracture uh, that occurs in the interstitial fluid space. So that's the space that surrounds all of our muscle fibers. And so in order to keep our blood pressure up, uh, water will move in between our fluid compartments and out of our muscles and into our vasculature and that kind of stuff. And that's all normal. And so the dehydration theory would suggest that, well, when we sweat and we lose these electrolytes, that fluid moves uh, into our vasculature and out of that interstitial fluid space. And then there's a contracture of that interstitial fluid space. And as a result of that contracted interstitial fluid space, there's an increase in the mechanical pressure that occurs on the nerve terminals. And because of that increase in pressure and the increase in concentration in metabolites and neurotransmitters like acetylcholine, you get uh, spontaneous uh, contracture of the muscle and ultimately a muscle cramp. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the evidence to support this theory, it really comes down to some really old research from say the Hoover Dam and the workers that had muscle cramping while they were constructing the Hoover Dam and uh, some of uh, Talbot's research and those folks and Moss's research in miners noticing that people who did hard laborious work in hot conditions tended to get muscle cramping. And back in those times, they actually attributed the cramping due to overconsumption of fluid and a loss of blood chloride. 
it wasn't really until the late uh, and early 1990s-ish where people started to attribute muscle cramping to loss of fluids and loss of particularly sodium in sweat as a result of or the cause of muscle cramping. And so when we look at the evidence for that theory, it's, again, primarily coming from some of the old case studies that where they didn't have any control groups um, in the uh, early uh, 1990s, uh, Dr. Mike Bergeron did some research on tennis players and found that athletes with a history of cramping tended to lose large volumes of sweat. And as a result of losing large amounts of sweat, they also lost large amounts of sodium. And uh, that research, those case studies, case series were eventually followed up by two Gatorade funded studies. Uh, probably the most famous one was done by John Stofan in the Oklahoma Sooners football team. Uh, and that's the sweaty Sooner study as it was kind of called in the literature where they showed that people with a history of cramping tended to lose more sodium in their sweat than matched athletes who did not have a history of exercise associated muscle cramping. And then that study was followed up by Craig Horswell, who was also at the time working for Gatorade, who showed in, again, American football players that people with a history of cramping tended to lose more sodium in their sweat than athletes without a history of cramping. And so when you take a look at both uh, Dr. Bergeron's research and uh, Dr. Horswell and uh, Mr. Stofan's research, and you add up all of the crampers that were in all of the collective studies, you get about 29 people. And so one of the problems when you look at sweat research is sweat sodium particularly has a wide range of possible values, anywhere from 20 millimoles per liter to over 100 millimoles per liter. And so when you're dealing with something that has large variability in it, you need a large number of people in order to figure out if there are truly differences. And in both Gatorade funded studies, they had very small sample sizes, uh, five crampers, for example, versus five non-crampers in the sweaty sooner study. And so when you have a wide variability measurement like sweat sodium concentration, you need a large sample size. And so uh, what's interesting about those Gatorade funded studies is these guys lost large amounts of sodium. In fact, in the Stofan study, for example, over the course of the day, the guys in the cramping group lost over 10 grams of sodium. Now, when you consider that our daily dietary recommendation for sodium is right around two grams, that's a huge amount of sodium loss. But what's interesting in all of the Gatorade funded research studies, all of Dr. Bergeron's uh, research studies in the tennis players, with all the high fluid losses and all the high sodium losses, not one single person in all of those research studies actually got exercise associated muscle cramping. As some about cases, to ask you that. <laughs> despite having 10 grams of sodium loss, not one person cramped. And so uh, I think uh, the big things with those studies is they tend to have smaller sample sizes, which is an issue. Uh, but then also they tend to look at the worst of the worst offenders. Like in the Gatorade funded studies, for example, they, they only used guys who needed IVs uh, for muscle cramping, had medical documentation that cramping had occurred, um, and 
other types of criteria like that. And so what we know from just kind of anecdote and talking with clinicians is if you've ever had a muscle cramp, you don't go running to the athletic trainer. I would say most of the time, right? You self-treat because you don't think it's that serious. And then you go back to playing. It's only the people who frequently get muscle cramping where it's always a problem where you start seeing clinicians actually take notice of it. They start making soap notes. They start working with the athlete actively to try and prevent this. But most of the time cramping is say more a nuisance than a, a real major limitation that affects a player's ability to perform their activity. And so if you're not getting most of the people coming to an athletic trainer, you're probably ignoring most crampers. And so in the Gatorade funded studies, the point I'm trying to make here is you probably have the worst of the worst offenders. And so uh, recognizing those limitations, uh, myself and Dr. Susan Jurgen from University of South Carolina and Dr. Brendan McDermott from the University of Arkansas, we collaborated on a study and we collected sweat samples from 11 different sports in 350 Division I collegiate athletes, male and female from athletes with and without a history of muscle cramping. And when you get a large sample size like that, and you look at whether or not people with a history of cramping lose more electrolytes in their sweat than those without a history, what you find is there are no differences in the crampers and the non-crampers. And even looking at predictability statistics, like can you use sweat sodium concentration or potassium concentration or chloride concentrations to identify who is and who is not a cramper? Those things by themselves are worthless for every single sport that we looked at. And that ranged from field hockey to lacrosse, wrestling, volleyball, basketball, American football. We looked at as many people as we could. And when you add sweat rate with sodium concentration, so you know in grams, for example, how many uh, grams of sodium are lost, 10 out of 11 sports, none of those things were predictive of who was and who was not a cramper in our research study. Uh, so you ask, well, which sport was the one where it was predictive? And it was American football. And so we're trying to tease out like why American football appears to be special. Obviously, the guys are bigger, they lose more fluid, et cetera. Uh, but for most athletes, none of those things predict who is and who is not a cramper. Okay. And I think that's where um, I think it's interesting to say that it's always, and just as a clinically practicing athletic trainer, I think it's it's predictable. You're going to focus on the outlier because that's always the person who's coming through your door. Because if you look at injury rates versus total population, it is smaller. And it's almost like, I hope those listening and um, watching along were really paying attention to what you said that across all these sports, it's not predictive. So taking, and you can even take this from like the rehab idea of approach is N equals one for most of our patients. They have their own histories, their own needs, their, their individuals. So taking an intervention that might work for that person who's losing two to three, sometimes four, um, I worked with hockey for a while, so I have data of goalies losing four and a half to six grams in a practice and apply that to someone who doesn't have a sweat rate where they might lose a pound or two, which can be made up two hours after practice, might actually do my low sweater, my person with less of a concentration, a huge disservice. Um, so I think 
I kind of want to take this, Jeremy. You're listening along. Do you have any questions while we keep talking? I don't want to. No, I think I can ask most of mine at the end. Uh, Right now, I feel like I'm really just kind of learning, like you said, busting some of the myths and understanding the whole idea rather than you're dehydrated. That's why, or you're not trained hard enough. So just keep it going. Perfect. So I think um, moving in that direction is we want to look at, obviously, the majority of I would say interventions you see, I'm pretty active on social media, Jeremy's active on social media. Um, I think this is the most common argument is what are are people eating, what are people drinking, what are people doing to prevent a hamstring cramp? Um, But I think these interventions are based off of not only assumption, but like Dr. Miller pointed out, the the outliers, so that might not be entirely accurate. Um, What types of risks, Dr. Miller, do you think exist when we, or let's back up for a second. Um, Taking the hydration approach. um, I think that's something everybody is, there's safety aspects to that. There's performance aspects. I think it does apply to all of us. I know hydration is not the only thing athletic trainers do, but we have a history of being in the (laughs) primary spot to make sure that occurs with athletes. But I think what aspects of hydration um, scientifically might not support its use for um, uh, for muscle cramping. So, like, what about the physiology of how we drink and how water is replaced might not support the assumption that drinking will solve a muscle cramp? I think the, the big one, and maybe the most obvious one right away, is anytime that you orally consume something, uh, in order for it to be absorbed into the body, that takes time. And so when we talk about how fast does a fluid leave the stomach, for example, so we get an idea of, how fast can the fluid be absorbed by the small intestines into the vasculature and then work its way through to a cramping muscle. All that takes time. And so when you look at uh, fluid replacement as a way of solving an acute muscle cramp, it's just the process is uh, not going to occur fast enough to help that athlete that is in pain in front of you. And so when we look at evidence for and against a particular theory, for example, Uh, We already talked about the the best thing you can do for somebody if they're cramping in front of you is you stretch the cramp. Once you break that cramp, then you can start working on, you know, what may have preceded the cramping. What else can we do for this person? Um, But stretching doesn't add fluid or electrolytes to the body. And so when you have a cramp going on, if that cramp is due to dehydration, then the treatment is obvious. Well, it's hydration. And yet we have a mechanism and a treatment that doesn't add fluid or electrolytes to the body, but works most of the time. And so, again, there's some logical inconsistencies with that dehydration theory. And so, again, it just takes time. If you're going to orally consume a sports drink or water or bananas or mustard or something, it takes time for that solution to get out of your stomach, into your small intestines, absorbed, work its way through the muscle. And so... Uh, again, you got to stretch people first and foremost in order to stop the cramp, get them out of that pain, spasm, uh, pain, cramp cycle, and then you can work on something else and identify the other risk factors that may have led to the development of their cramp. But especially with cramping, it seems like a lot of times we want to take the, the shortcuts, right? You want to be able to give somebody some advice that you think might help them. And so we see a lot of people say, well, drink this you know, and your cramps will go away. Or if you just show up to practice, 
better hydrated, then you won't get cramping. And so we give this kind of general treatment advice, but if uh, cramping is not due to hydration or if hydration is just a small component or maybe a small risk factor in the development of cramping, then you're doing that athlete a disservice. Because as you mentioned, Mike, there's a big range in how much people sweat. I mean, what you have a 300 pound lineman sweating out is very different than uh, a 90 pound gymnast. And so giving them the same blanket treatment advice of drinking more fluid may make that gymnast at risk of more serious conditions like exertional hyponatremia. And so if I just tell everybody drink, you know, two liters of water, the gymnast might be overhydrated and the lineman's probably going to be underhydrated. And so when it comes to, you know, treatment, we again have to take a very individualized approach. And that unfortunately means you have to spend a lot more time with your athlete, especially your cramping athletes, because there are possibly a lot of factors that combine or maybe work individually. We're still trying to sort that out to cause the cramp, which means I got to ask you a ton of questions and that's going to take more time. And it's a lot harder individualize your treatment option giving general treatment advice and i want to go down what you just said about Hang on, drinking Mike, can i can i yeah, jump yeah. in real quick because that was actually one of the questions that i had was about absorption so can you kind of go back in again knowing that individuals are each going to process things differently that that we just kind of cover the absorption so if we're looking at water or we're looking at cold water or like chicken soup or a banana can you just go over go over the how long is it going to take to absorb so i stretch them that's the first thing and that relieves the immediate pain but now i'm going to try and have them absorb something what does the time frame look like in that a great question so gastric emptying rates is what we're really discussing here and so we know gastric emptying is influenced by a lot of different factors uh volume of whatever you're taking in seems to be the the main determinant of how fast something leaves the stomach. Uh, for example, we did a study a couple of years ago where we gave people uh, 600 to 700 milliliters of pickle juice or deionized water. And what we noticed was even when you drink a salty, acidic solution that has a high osmolality like pickle juice, it empties from the stomach very quickly. And that's because of that volume stimulus. So when your stomach expands, the pressure receptors, occur in the stomach and they they want to push things into the small intestine but once that volume stimulus is gone then some of those other things that you mentioned jeremy like the temperature and the acidity and the ph and the osmolality and all of those things start to factor in and affect how quickly something leaves the stomach now when it comes to water and your like your typical sports drinks that have a concentration of carbohydrate in the six to eight percent range like uh, Gatorade and most other sports drinks, those things will have uh, gastric emptying rates very similar to pure water. And that's on purpose. And so uh, normally water will take right around 10 to 30 minutes to completely empty from the stomach. But again, that takes time. And so if you have a guy cramping in front of you and I give him a sports drink, and even if he drinks a large volume of that sports drink, it's still going to take a uh, longer time than it is for me just to stretch him to break his cramp. So again, I'm just stating the obvious of what everybody does. If somebody's cramping in front of you, the first thing you do for them is not throw them a sports drink. It's you stretch them and then the cramp goes away. Then you get them to the sideline 
and you start working with massage or cryotherapy or something to relieve that pain, uh, that pain spasm cycle. One, I wanted to ask one quick question, I guess going a little further on that. What are the factors that are pretty well known, known to slow gastric emptying? Yeah, that, pretty much the, the ones we already mentioned. So uh, pH will slow uh, gastric emptying. So if you drink a, uh, a very acidic drink like pickle juice, for example, uh, that will slow gastric emptying. Uh, osmolality or how much content uh, a drink has, like if it's very salty like pickle juice, that will slow gastric emptying. Uh, some of the other things are relatively minor, like exercise, um, temperature of the fluid have very minor effects, but usually it's the volume, the pH, the osmolality, the carbohydrate content will tend to slow gastric emptying if it's pretty high, like exceeds that eight to uh, eight or higher percentages will also negatively affect gastric emptying. So I think what I, what I wanted to highlight, and you articulated it better than I did, the all the factors that slow what is essentially the gatekeeper to solving the problem is sport. It's exercise, small volumes, because no one's in practical use. I know people have done it or drinking two liters of fluid, nor, or they shouldn't be. You're discouraged from doing that. Um, concentrated, so like maybe it's goose or the packets that are about this big, which is going to be low volume, high concentration. So all these factors that we are have been shown pretty accurately to slow gastric emptying are being applied as a quick fix. And so I think that has a lot of practical um, information from a, a lot of those products are extremely expensive. If we're not talking, you know, Gatorade and Powerade and sports drink sponsorships with the school, but yeah. So you might be used athletic trainers uh, might be using a product incorrectly to solve a problem that could be part of their budget and costing them a significant amount of money. And I know from, my experience when I started in high school, I had no money. And so what I did have for products, I needed to use effectively. And so a lot of that, I think, is might as well throw it in the trash can if they're going to apply it in the sense well, of. I think, uh, I think too, with uh, that recent discussion, the assumption that we're making is whatever is in the product that you're consuming works mm -hmm. through the nutrient being absorbed into the bloodstream. Um, pickle juice, for example, uh, we have some data showing that when you drink pickle juice during a cramp, it will relieve the cramp faster than when you do nothing at all or you drink water. But the cramp goes away within like 90 seconds. And so again, we know from the other studies that I've done that pickle juice stays in the stomach when you drink a small volume for about 20 minutes. So you have an effect that's relatively quick, but it's not out of the stomach yet. And so what we think might be happening in the case of pickle juice, for example, is there might be some kind of oral pharyngeal reflex going on. And so if a product is claimed to work because it's being absorbed by the body because it contains some kind of nutrient, then yeah, I think that criticism is, is right on that. You know, it, it's just going to be too slow to help somebody who's actively cramping mm -hmm. in front of you. But if the product says, well, maybe our product worked because it triggers this reflex, and that reflex somehow screws up the excitatory signaling in the central nervous system that's causing the cramp, mm -hmm. well, there might be some potential for that mechanism. And I think one of the other things that, and from the practical standpoint, and I, I know I said there'd be no math, but of course I'm going to do math. How, how, how much would you estimate two liters of water weighs? Uh, right around two kgs. 
So two kilograms. So I think for those following along, in some cases, um, if you're having your athletes drink two liters of water, you might as well give them a two kg kettlebell to run around with because it's you're adding weight from a performance factor. So I think that's the other aspect. Distance runners, your high high volume, high distance athletes, um, soccer's, basketballs, things like that. They don't want two pounds, two kilograms of stuff sloshing around in their stomach. So um, in addition to, I think, some other other risk factors, because I think when we get into ingestion, can you give the explain like I'm five version of the difference between um, hypotonic, isotonic and hypertonic? Because I think this gets into the what are our risk factors um, with some of these? Like, what could we be unintentionally doing or reinforcing? Um, I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I think it starts with, because I think that's where people get confused. I remember I sent you the picture of the sports drink aisle at the grocery store by my house that said isotonic across the top, and it was the whole aisle. And I know that's not true. I just thought it was funny because I think things like that are funny. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so explain like I'm five version of the difference between those. Yeah, so in a, in a very, very simplified manner, uh, tonicity of a fluid is essentially like how much stuff is within that fluid. And then we usually reference that back to the body. So for example, the human body's uh, blood sodium concentration is right around 140 millimoles per liter. And so if I take a, a hypotonic solution like any sports drink out there, Gatorade, Powerade, you know, Staminade, A-Game, Body Armor, they're all considered hypotonic in, in reference to the body. In other words, they contain more water in them than they do salt, for example. And so if I drink a solution that is less salty than what my blood is, then I will tend to dilute my bloodstream. And so this is where we get really concerned about conditions like hyponatremia, which is low blood sodium. So if I drink a large amount of sports drink or pure water, I'm going to tend to dilute my blood sodium concentration. And if I drink so much of that, I'll dilute my blood sodium concentration to the point where my brain is more osmotically active than my bloodstream. And so... Uh, kind of your basic chemistry rule is that water will follow salt. And so if your brain is more active osmotically than your bloodstream, water goes from your bloodstream and into your brain. And you just don't have a lot of space in your skull for expansion of your brain due to fluid accumulation. So this is where hyponatremia becomes a, a major concern. And so hopefully, you know, we've kind of danced around this topic, but if you believe that cramping is a result of dehydration and you're a high school athlete for example and you've been seeing all the commercials and you've heard all the stuff online that cramping is due to dehydration and you get a muscle cramp well then you assume well i must be dehydrated and so you you drink some water and then you keep playing football and you get another muscle cramp and so the logic goes well i must still be dehydrated so i'm going to drink even more water this time and so uh, we know that this happens uh, back in 2014, Zyrese Oliver, uh, Walker Wilbanks, they were two healthy high school American football players and both died within about three weeks of each other in August of 2014 from hyponatremia. And both players were trying to prevent 
exercise associated muscle cramping. And they essentially drank so much water and sports drink that they diluted their blood sodium concentration where, again, water moved into their brain and uh, they developed hyponatremia and eventually passed away from that. And so, again, you see how kind of the failed logic and not using an individualized treatment approach of here's how much fluid you lose when you exercise. Therefore, here's how much you need to drink to be safe leads to potentially disastrous results. Yeah. So I think, um, and I think a lot of that, I think sometimes runs people off. You can see me looking off to the side of my screen here because I want to pull up some numbers because I think math, math is important. We all like math, um, but it is simple math. If you look at, um, and I think that's when I try to make this um, with some uh, consulting I've done and things of that nature. Um, I think the most powerful point we make is obviously we want to try and prevent sudden death or I know hyponatremia is not really considered a sudden death, I don't think, but it's nonetheless. But if we look at, um, I found it. So this is your information, Dr. Miller. I just borrowed it for a presentation for some students. Um, so if we look at um, your average sports drink, um, uh, per eight ounce serving, so this is the big, and I, I did the math in the big, the big packets we get that are, they fill five gallons of water, pick your flavor, Powerade, Gatorade, Body Armor, it doesn't matter because they're all pretty close, give or take, I don't know, 20 milligrams of sodium. But so if this belief of hydration or loss of sodium, in my opinion, that's two different conversations because if we're talking sports drink um, for hydration, okay, you can hydrate based off those fluids. But if we're talking sodium replacement, that's where we get to the height where we're providing an intervention that is actually going to produce opposite um, <laughs> our intended purpose for the said intervention. But if we look at the uh, powder packages, they have about 100 milligrams of sodium per eight ounce serving. And the bottle that you just get at 7-Eleven, 250 milligrams of sodium per serving. And that's the ones you can go to Costco, get the big thing of them. And if you look at just your average athlete, um, what would you say is an average sodium loss, Dr. Miller, during exercise from just your average human? So most people, and again, from the 350 athletes that we tested, and when you look at the literature, the average sodium concentration in someone's sweat is right around 50 millimoles per liter. Okay. So, I mean, 50 millimoles per liter at, if we're talking just a Powerade bottle, right, of 20 ounces of vending size, that's about, I don't know, six liters based off my math, and this math could be a little bit wrong. That's roughly, I would need six liters of Powerade to replace, theoretically, the sodium lost for that average athlete in about an hour of exercise. Um, or if they had lost... Um, I think we actually know, I'm sorry, the math was two hours of exercise. So we're looking at six liters of a hypotonic solution that is being marketed and presented to athletes as sodium replacement, because there's this also, also this belief that the sodium is why they're having, you know, muscle cramping. And then to Dr. Miller's point, what we're actually doing is more likely putting those athletes into a, a situation where hyponatremia is a very real threat. And then if we standardize an intervention to a population that shouldn't be standardized, 
we're actually putting a great deal of people at risk in, you know, with good intentions. I don't think any athletic trainers are doing this because they have any ill intention. They were just trained to help, but it's coming from an opinion of that's not, not very well informed. This is what they've always done. Um, I think always the hardest feedback we get is well, it worked. <laughs> so they're going to keep doing it. Well, okay. I mean, I'm not going to argue. It's hard to argue that, but I think like Dr. Miller said, you have to ask more questions. You have to ask better questions. It's not just satisfied for the answer. You have to ask a better question. Um, cure tennis elbow too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's one of the things. And then I want to, I want to kind of look at this from like the hydration standpoint of will we, so if we know that. Did we finish going over the hypertonic and isotonic solutions? Did we, or is that coming? Um, so I think, um, yeah, so I think what we'll get to is, um, we can kind of do two things at once. So if we get, so we know hypotonic is water, um, or the majority of sports drinks a lot of us have as a result of just access to with contracts and schools and things like that. But then we get into hypertonic and where that kind of plays in. And I think it kind of gets to retaining fluid. Um, and this is a big interest of mine from a research standpoint, but also uh, what's called sodium retention um, and how we, how you go about that. Because I think that's the other side of it. Cause I, anytime I present this, I always get this, this feedback. We're like, okay, you just told me everything I've done for 30 years doesn't work. <laughs> so now what? And I, and I valid criticism. I'll take that. But um, where do you think hypertonic plays in Dr. Miller? So it's like, if we actually want to apply a hypertonic solution to maybe get on the front end of something, if that is part of the problem, um, how would you go about that? Again, I think uh, the hypertonic solution is just the opposite of the hypotonic, right? So if uh, hypotonic does not have as much stuff or has more water in it than stuff, if you will, like electrolytes, then a hypertonic mm -hmm. has a very high concentration of those electrolytes. And so if the solution that you're drinking is saltier than the bloodstream, for example, we would say, okay, this solution is hypertonic. So mm -hmm. ocean water, pickle juice, those are hypertonic solutions when you compare them to the body. And so if I drink a large amount of pickle juice, my sodium values will tend to increase because I just added a lot of sodium to my bloodstream. Um, same thing with ocean water. That's why they tell you not to drink ocean water if you're stranded on a desert island because your, your kidneys are going to try and flush out all that extra salt that you took in and you end up dehydrating yourself even further. Mm -hmm. So that's why you don't drink ocean water if you're all alone in a boat on the ocean. And so uh, if you look at the research that you've done, Mike, and the research that I've done with pickle juice, we are not giving people a very large amount of pickle juice. So we're not dehydrating people when you drink a double shot or 70 mils of pickle juice. And so we don't worry about nausea or fullness or thirst or more dehydration when you drink that kind of amount of fluid but if you drink a large quantity of that then yeah those become concerns and so again water follows salt so if i take in a lot of salt water will tend to move into my vasculature because my blood just became saltier and so uh, that will also tend to have me retain more fluid as you mentioned to a point where um, 
eventually my body will try and reestablish normal equilibrium by trying mm -hmm. to pee out and try to get rid of all that extra salt. But for the short term, yeah, I will retain more of that fluid. Yeah. And I think that is where some people see improvements in performance. Cause if we retain fluid, the opposite end of that spectrum is an increase in plasma volume. So if you have an increased plasma volume, increased aerobic capacity, we know not out of exercise cramping research, although it's observed that delays fatigue. So the spot where athletes are maybe fatigued, cramping, and we can have a big philosophical discussion about movement patterns and how that contributes to fatigue once it's present. Um, I'm of the personal, like following this of the personal belief that, um, and there's been some case studies that have shown this too, that if you correct firing patterns for what's considered a normal movement pattern, you can address cramps long-term. Um, I'm blanking on the author. Was it Weber? It was Wagner. the case that Wagner. Yeah. The case study of the um, ultra triathlete debilitating cramps. And the only thing that fixed him was a 26 week, one day a week glute activation protocol. I think it might've taken 20 minutes on a wet. They th think they said they did it every Wednesday. Now that's one person. He has a huge medical history that they had to take into account. And, but I think it's just a good example of they tried everything. They tried blood, diet, hydration, IVs, you name it. And the only thing that fixed them was isometrics, <laughs> isometrics and concentric exercise. Um, so I think that's where the, I think some people stray away from exercising areas that cramp because they're afraid of making it cramp. And I think it's just being more um, tactical, I guess, with where you put those exercises and address movement patterns. Um, but I wanted to kind of focus on something else you were talking about is, so we know that, not that we've necessarily put it to bed, but we've exposed, I think, some of the logical holes or plot holes in why taking acute sodium doesn't work. Acute um, water can actually be more harmful, but we have a study that says something did, did happen. There was, um, pickle juice did help, help a cramp in a pretty short period of time. Um, I've read the study I've, many times. I'm sure many other people have read it as well. Um, but I guess articulate a little bit about that. What mechanism might be occurring then? So if it's just sitting in the stomach, how, how, what pathway could be occurring to alleviate a muscle cramp in that setting? Great question. And we're still trying to figure this out, to be quite honest. Um, and so a lot of this was trying to work backwards. So we know... Uh, from the research that pickle juice, again, seemed to cause a reduction in how long somebody cramped. That cramp still lasted about 90 seconds on average. So again, pickle juice is not a cure-all. You know, don't take away from this discussion that everybody should be drinking pickle juice because I don't believe that to be true either. Um, but you have a phenomenon that seems to relieve a cramp within about 90 seconds, which is still significantly uh, slower treatment than stretching. So stretch them first still, but you have this phenomenon where it appears drinking pickle juice relieves a cramp faster than water or nothing at all. And so we try to work our way backwards. And this is part of the um, fun and frustration, I guess, of science is that uh, right now we can only speculate on why this seems to work. We do know that pickle juice is sitting in the stomach and when you drink small volumes of it, we don't seem to get these changes at all in plasma volume, plasma sodium, plasma chloride, plasma magnesium, calcium, osmolality, 
none of that stuff in the blood changes over the course of an hour in dehydrated humans, in hydrated humans, with or without activity. The amount of pickle juice you're giving to somebody is just not a lot in the context of the research that we've done. And so when you see a cramp go away and there aren't any changes in any of the major electrolytes of the blood, you look for another explanation. And so the effect is so fast that for me, it has to be neurological. And so there are receptors in your mouth, they're called trip receptors. They respond to changes in pH and those types of things. And they do, uh, at least in the context of acetic acid research, like the vinegar, uh, there is some research out there with vinegar causing these complex reflexes in the mouth that may somehow cause an interruption in that uh, processing from the central nervous system to the muscle. So the way I usually try to explain it in a very simplified term is think of it as kind of like how you interrupt the pain sensation if you slam your hand in a car door, for example. You know, you grab somewhere else on your body and you pinch yourself. And so the brain can only handle so much stimuli, for example, that kind of gate control idea. And so if I can pinch myself somewhere else and cause another pain stimulus, maybe I can tolerate the initial pain from my, you know, hitting my hand in the car door. So maybe something like that is happening where pickle juice acts as almost like a counter irritant where it just kind of disrupts those neurological signals that are happening due to the cramp. So we're still trying to figure out that mechanism. I don't have a great physiological pathway that I can give you. Well, here's A, then B mm-hmm. happens. C happens. We're still trying to figure that out right now. And I always think it's interesting because the the pendulum in sports medicine seems to always swing one direction, and we're saying, "Oh, that's an old wives' tale. It doesn't work." And then, oh wait, so maybe my like, I, I hear this all the time, especially where I started my career. A lot of individuals, their grandfathers, would drink apple cider vinegar. Right. If they if they had cramps, and now we're starting to get back to swing the pendulum back. That hey, maybe they they didn't know there was something to that. But um, I, I always want to bring this up if people are considering this as an option. What are what are the overall risk factors of ingesting a large amount of vinegar? Uh, well, uh, we did a study once where we gave people pure white vinegar. Again, very small bolus. It was only about seventy to eighty mils. But if you're drinking pure vinegar, like white vinegar. You're going to have a burning sensation uh, in your esophagus. Your throat might feel scratchy for a day or so. Uh, But eventually, once that fluid gets into your stomach and into your uh, proximal small intestine, your body works to uh, neutralize that. So Mm -hmm. it donates spaces. And so eventually you get to a point where your uh, intestines are a neutral uh, pH. And so when we talk about those effects that are, you know, causing those reflexes in the mouth, it's very proximal. So Mm -hmm. you cause this reflex by activating the glossopharyngeal nerve or the, uh, any other inhibitory nerve, possibly like the vagus nerve in the throat and back of the mouth. And is that what causes the reduction in cramp duration? Again, we're not sure quite yet, Mm -hmm. but I would say if you're drinking a small amount, it's probably not going to cause uh, a great deal of harm, but if you're doing this on a frequent basis, like before you go to bed every night because you get nighttime cramping, I would say make sure you talk to your doctor before you do something like that. I mean, we certainly don't want to have, you know, 50, 60-year-old patients consuming a large amount of salt when they're on blood pressure medication, you know. <laughs> so when we do our studies, we look for healthy, physically active, usually college-age people 
who can tolerate a short duration of a high salty solution like pickle juice. And um, we have not yet looked at what is the effect of a prolonged dietary adjustment with those types of solutions yet. So I'd, I would say at this point, be very careful with that. Talk to your physician before you try and implement something like that, uh, if that's something that you're going to try. But I think uh, we come back to the, what should I do if I have an athlete that keeps on cramping? If it's not dehydration, if it's not sodium restoration, well, what do I do? And I think, again, we come back to cramping can be multifactorial. And it can be unique both between people and even within the same person. And so the way I usually think of this is the way that we have a hundred different recipes for pasta sauce, we might have a hundred different recipes for how a cramp occurs in an athlete. And so if we think of your threshold for when you cramp is like right here, if you start exercise and you didn't get a good night's sleep, maybe instead of here, you're right here. You start exercise, you're still not cramping because your threshold for cramping is right here, but you didn't get a good night's sleep, so you start the exercise more fatigued than usual. And then maybe your exercise session is a little bit more strenuous than what you're used to. So you get upticked again. And then you do something else. Maybe you had like new shoes that you're breaking in. Now you cramp. So one factor by itself maybe doesn't cause cramping, but you combine that with another uh, recipe ingredient for you. And now you do cramp. And so when it comes to cramp prevention and even cramp treatment, what you want to do is you want to find the recipe for why your athlete cramped. And again, that's hard work. You got to do your homework. You got to ask your athlete as many questions as you can think of that tie into the possible physiology of why cramps occur during exercise, which means you're going to ask them lots of questions about fatigue. You're going to ask them lots of questions about exercise intensity and duration and those types of things. Uh, Ask them about their diet. Ask them about hydration because again, like you mentioned, Mike, hydration can maybe play a role, not in the context of an increased pressure in the interstitial fluid space and that kind of stuff, but maybe from a fatigue standpoint, mm-hmm. the hydration may still help people and may prevent cramping if that's one of their individual risk factors. Now, the other major assumption in all of that explanation is that every risk factor plays a similar role in the development of cramping. Maybe there's three risk factors that we can generalize to the entire population as the most important. Everything else is a minor risk factor. That's where we're currently going with the muscle cramp area of research right now is identifying the unique risk factors and their level of importance to the development of muscle cramping. That's where we still have to do quite a bit of work. Yeah. And I think, um, and I think obviously like, I think that sounds off putting to people, but I don't think they realize I think in today's world, 20 years ago, everything Dr. Miller just said is extremely difficult to do. And I'm kind of a tech nerd and I don't think it's actually that hard because I think a lot of us in educational institutions have access to some type of survey software um, where you can create all the questions Dr. Miller just said largely for free and automate how well it gets sent out. So you can do it, handwritten paper, have them turn in things. And if you want to do that, it's your prerogative. But all the questions Dr. Miller said you to have answers to are really easy for a lay person to answer. Um, they're not, they don't require a broad amount of education. I think even in Jeremy's population in high school, it's easily done. You're asking kids how long they sleep. When did they eat? How many meals a day did they eat? 
um, if they drink how much. If you want to go down the road of um, checking hydration and tracking weight, it's easy to track weight. Um, and then I think you can start, you know, red flagging these people a little bit easier. Um, and especially in settings where you don't have a lot of human, you know, the human capital, the human resources, one, maybe two athletic trainers. If you give clear direction to the athlete, you can have a lot of assistance, I think, from a lot of different um, viewpoints in an athlete's care team. Because, you know, I think we need to be cognizant of that coaches are part of an athlete's care team, especially when there's one athletic trainer for 700 athletes. Um, so you can give them a strategy and say, hey, these athletes need to do this. These athletes need to do this. And I think you can do good work. I had another mentor that said, it's like making pizza. Everybody likes pizza and they always want the best pizza, but even pretty good pizza, still pizza. So it's like if you're getting, you know, pretty good information on your athletes, it's better than just waiting for the fourth quarter in a big game deep in the Texas heat of a football season for your guys that are high reps, four quarter, two way players to go down. Um, you obviously don't want that or like big soccer matches. You don't want, you know, I know uh, Texas has a different, uh, I know Jeremy's kind of laughing here. Texas has a different uh, soccer participation schedule and up here in New England, we don't play soccer in the winter outdoors. But um, like if you have a women's soccer championship and you have, you know, your midfielder is a big reason you're there. You want to make sure you're doing right by those people because they're undergoing a great deal of stress and arguably you're probably going to be at greater risk for a number of things. And I think this all, all plays in. So I guess, kind of, sorry. What you're looking for here are trends. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you read any of my stuff that I publish, you'll oftentimes hear me give the recommendation that you should have athletes that are particularly susceptible to cramping keep a cramped journal. And so you have them write down the answers to the questions that you can think, think of that may lead to why the cramp occurred. And then you look for patterns. So you got a cramp on Tuesday. When we look at your answers, it looked like you didn't get a good night's sleep. You didn't eat anything that day and practice went 30 minutes longer than normal or was more intense than normal. So you look for the trends. And so if you find that, okay, sleep appears to be your issue and uh, you're not as physically fit as you should be, then I can address those as your athletic trainer. We can work on those together as those preventative factors. But yeah, just taking a, a general treatment advice of just, well, you just gotta drink more or you gotta eat better. Um, that might be true, but you got to make that specific and individualize that to your athlete. Yeah. So I guess with all that, Jeremy, I guess you said you had a bunch of questions you wanted to ask. I'm sure we can go a lot of different directions. Did you have any that you were either coming in via Facebook or that you were thinking of as we were talking or. Uh, we do have quite a few people watching that have checked in live. Uh, Gary Gillis, Catherine Lawrence, Hannah Goodwin, Lance L. I'll check in live, but. They may just be like sitting back and enjoying the conversation like I am. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, Mike, was uh, having the pickle juice or trying to take care of something on the front end. And again, mm -hmm. we're kind of growing in the understanding that each cramp is kind of individual, but we're looking for trends and each patient is individual. So mm -hmm. again, avoiding the blanket statement, but if I do want to do something on the front end to help them... Um, with the with the hydration theory not not so much the neurological theory mm -hmm. what what are your recommendation recommendations there time so a lot of times a lot of people you see a lot of interventions and again 
I'm, I lurk all over social media and I'm not saying I'm all, <laughs> all encompassing, but I see a lot of solutions that are somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 minutes to 60 minutes before a competition. Like, oh, that's, that's when we're going to focus on hydration. Because in fairness, I think that's when a lot of ATs have the contact and the influence and the ability to do that. But if we're talking what's best supported by evidence on what they can do is, is really drinking throughout the day. Or um, one of the interventions that we, um, I personally implemented because we definitely identified some high sodium, high, high sodium sweaters with high fluid losses. So kind of a perfect storm of what you don't want. Um, how do we address that? Because six, 60 minutes before a hockey game, that's not happening. They're not fixing that. So what you do is you back up their sodium replacement to about lunchtime. So if we have a seven o'clock game, we were doing sodium replacement um, and fluid replacement starting at about one one thirty. Um, so they would have a high bolus or high ingestion rate of sodium paired with a meal. Because um, if you read the research um, that was done with chicken noodle soup, they found that ingestion of sodium as a food was it was absorbed and retained in your body better. So that's the studies where the pretty much people down an entire can of chicken noodle soup, broth, noodles, chicken, everything, just empty the can. And then all they have to do from that point on is drink water or a hypotonic solution. So um, as Dr. Miller alluded to, some of that sugar is not the enemy necessarily in some of those products because it actually helps with active transport. So you've got active and passive transport of water plus sugar or carbs aiding further transport of uh, water across the small intestine. So doing that up until game time and making sure that um, they're only drinking when they're thirsty, because um, I think that's where the risk factors with Zyrie's Oliver and some of these other cases came in, is no longer thirsty. No, they were well beyond their baseline weights, and now, but they continue to drink and drink and drink and drink and drink. And that's what you want to kind of avoid and just have people comfortable. So everyone's got a, school, a lunch period, the day of a football game on Friday in Texas. So I think... Yeah, that's where that has to start. And there's an education component. So I'd be remiss to say, okay, just give them a little handout and say, do this. There is buy-in. I think Dr. Miller can echo this too. The single greatest factor that grenades any intervention is taste and drinking behavior. It has nothing to do with what's actually being ingested at all. It's the behavior of the person doing the drinking. So you've got to have both. Um, and then I think once athletes go through that process, they're going to feel better. And now you've got that buy-in because they're going to know if I do X, Y, and Z, I feel prepared for a game just by starting earlier. Um, I know there's some difficulty. I've seen the discussions, especially in the secondary school AT group. Kids aren't allowed to have water bottles in class and things like that at some institutions. And I know that 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 is a barrier that can be difficult because they spend their whole day in class. But um, I don't know. Does that answer your question at least a little bit to the – probably start around that lunch period, one o'clock. Obviously it's a seven day a week thing for athletes as we'd want it, but I'm also, I live in the real world too as a clinically practicing AT. So I know like, hey, if I can at least get the intervention on game day or moving up to their practice, I think that would be best. Or if it's one of the instances where they've got a two o'clock practice, then we're starting at breakfast, so to speak. And I think that's where you can build those habits in their season as they go kind of like you can block schedule their hydration. I agree with that. I mean, you want to try and be consistent in your fluid intake rather than drinking like a full two liter thing of fluid right before you go compete. 
as Mike alluded to, that's not going to feel good. The water sloshing around your stomach. And I think culturally, we've kind of bought into this idea that any amount of dehydration is awful. I mean, I've got college students where every single one of them has a water bottle. And so we've almost reached the status now where we're paranoid about any kind of amount of dehydration. And so it is completely normal for an athlete who is exercising, even in hot conditions, to be somewhat dehydrated at the end of that. That's completely normal and that's absolutely fine. Uh, where we get into trouble is we, we start thinking, well, if a little bit of hydration is good, then a lot must be better. And so like Mike alluded to, when it comes to hydration advice, uh, the safest thing you can do for an athlete during an exercise bout is just to tell them, drink when you're thirsty. If you're thirsty, you've got a physiological rationale for needing fluid. And drinking beyond that during activity is, is just trying to help you with some performance uh, aspects. The only time that we see dehydration actually kill somebody is when they physically cannot find water, which in almost all of the cases in organized sports is never a problem, right? After two hours, you know where the locker room is. Your backpack has a water bottle. There's a water fountain somewhere. You can find water. Dehydration in and of itself is not going to kill your athlete. But as Mike alluded to and we've talked about in the past, overhydration definitely can. And it comes from an area of good intentions. But yeah, we do have to educate our athletes that, you know, Susie, you don't lose that much when you sweat. So you don't need to drink a full two liter bottle of sports drink today. So doing the calculations for how much you lose via sweat is not difficult. And so if you can get buy-in from your coaching staff, and I realize that's a, that's a big if sometimes, but if you can have an athlete exercise for let's say 30 minutes, at an intensity that they would use during a normal competition and you can weigh them before and after that. And if you don't allow them to drink, if you don't let them urinate or go to the bathroom during that 30 minutes, it's very simple math of just, here's what they weighed at the end. Here's what they weighed at the beginning. Any difference in body weight is due to sweat loss. And so then you can say, okay, for you, you lose this much in your sweat. This is your sweat rate. And then this is what you need to drink in order to fully replace it. And so you, again, individualize your uh, hydration recommendations to prevent that occurrence. Now, if you don't have the time for all of that, the simple recommendation of drink when you're thirsty will prevent all of that, you know, potential disaster that occurs from hyponatremia. So when it comes to during exercise, yeah, drink when you're thirsty, your athletes are going to be just fine. When it comes to fully rehydrating, that's where you need to know how much fluid your athletes are actually losing with the sweat rate calculation, because we know thirst will kick off before you are fully rehydrated. And, and I so, think it, and I was going to say, I think it's also important to note, Jeremy, like when you're talking with interventions is also point out that not all of your fluid actually, or all of your water replacement comes from fluids. There's water content in food. So a lot of people will abandon if they have to choose I've got to eat or drink a ton of water. I mean, I'm here to tell you practically, they got to eat. They've got to eat um, because of all the, obviously the nutrition side of things. But as I said, with the uh, the chicken soup studies, that's food. 
Um, so they're able to rehydrate, retain water, retain sodium, and overall general homeostasis is improved with food. Um, so I think that's another point to drive home because a lot of people will tailor their rehydration strategies. And when I say a lot of people, healthcare providers, solely based off liquids, independent of food, which is incorrect. Um, I don't have a good number for exactly how much, I don't know if you might have this, Kevin, how much fluid comes from foods versus liquids. Um, I know that that varies on diet, region of the world, you know, things of that nature. So I don't want to give a, a false number, but the food is very important too. I hope people are not taking away from this podcast is uh, I don't want to get everybody the impression that we're anti-hydration. Mm-hmm. Um, hydration does a lot of great things for the body physiologically. It maintains your plasma volume. It helps with your blood pressure. It's going to help with the thermal regulatory capacity of the body so you can keep sweating so you don't get a dangerous condition like exertional heat stroke, although exertional heat stroke is probably more related to exercise intensity rather than hydration per se, but hydration can play a role in that. I don't think it's the sole cause of heat stroke, but it can play a role in thermal regulation. And so I don't want to give people the impression like we are anti-hydration. That is not what we're saying at all. You just have to individualize hydration. And in the context of cramping and the literature surrounding cramping, hydration is maybe not as big of a deal as we once made it out to be in the last 100 years. What's coming out more so now in the recent laboratory studies and even in the quasi-experimental research studies is it seems to be more related to central nervous system changes rather than dehydration. And so some of the more recent stuff from my lab, for example, has shown that when you have somebody that experiences a cramp, And that is the only thing that you do to them. No exercise. There's no dehydration. There's no electrolyte loss. When people experience a cramp, and we do that volitionally, so we ask people, can you cramp yourself? And they say, yes. And we get them to cramp. When we measure their central nervous system excitability after that cramp, what we notice is they become more excitable. And they become more excitable for up to an hour So when we talk about why do cramps keep on happening during exercise, part of the problem is you're you're fighting an uphill battle. Once your athlete gets the cramp, their central nervous system is probably primed to have a second cramp. So once you get that athlete, quote unquote, fixed and the cramp goes away, chances are you're truly not going to fix their cramping until after the competition is over because now their central nervous system is more excitable, and the likelihood of them getting a second and a third cramp goes up. As an aside, I can still cramp my left uh, calf on command. If it's a superpower or not. I don't know. I didn't know, I didn't know how to do that before grad school. I'll just, I'll just leave that out there. <laughs> so on that same note, um, if someone makes themselves cramp, then mm-hmm. is that at the same intensity as a cramp that happens due to exertion? And then, so yeah, does that change that that length of time that they're excitable after that or the intensity uh, or the, I guess, the threshold, kind of like you were talking about? Yeah, great question. So we're, we're still trying to figure that out. Um, when we talk about studying muscle cramping, it's really hard uh, to study muscle cramping because they're, they're spontaneous, they're unpredictable. Uh, I live in Michigan. And so for one of the few researchers in the world who studies cramping and 
Um, if I were to go out to every football practice or soccer practice, I might not see more than one or two cramps a year. Um, but if I go somewhere like Texas, maybe I see them every day. And so why cramping occurs and when it occurs is, is very tough to study scientifically. So when we look for ways to study cramping in a laboratory context, usually we see like electrical stimulation or magnetic stimulation or maximum voluntary activity. And so you're right, Jeremy, there are definitely uh, limitations to the ways that we study these things. So is a volitionally induced cramp the same thing as an exercise induced cramp? Uh, maybe not. Um, it's probably the closest thing that we can get to what actually occurs spontaneously on an athletic event. But are they exactly the same? Probably not. So when I talked about our volitionally induced cramp uh, research, uh, that's me trying to keep everything controlled except for the one thing that I'm changing. And so uh, the one thing that we changed was, did they develop a cramp? Yes, everything else we controlled for, temperature, exercise, all that jazz. So when you remove all the other confounding variables, you just have a cramp. Here's what seems to happen to the central nervous system. But is that the same thing as an exercise cramp? Probably not. So, and I would and say and to add to that, um, and this is from when I was in grad school, we tried the pilot study. There's a, a study with the last name Zhang at all, J-U-N-G, where they had a cramp protocol for the calf that in that study, they were able to induce cramping. So we tried to reproduce that um, in a pilot setting. We couldn't get anyone to cramp. Nobody. That was very difficult. <laughs> Nobody. My calves were really tired. My whole body hurt, um, but nothing cramped. Um, so... Just, just to echo like what Dr. Miller said, it's it's difficult. And then, so people are like, okay, maybe I go to Texas. These guys cramp, you know, in the fourth quarter and all that stuff. Well, in order us, for us to take good information to tell somebody's blood characteristics, it's not a finger prick. It's five milliliters of blood. So we can't pull this football player off the field in the middle of the game, cramping, take his blood, spin it, send him back out. And then get information from that. At least not yet. Maybe there's going to be some technological advances in the future. But boys we're talking soccer. Every single soccer, uh, boys soccer game has crampers. So if you want to do the research, <laughs> come down here. We got boys soccer. I think Dr. Uh, Sandy Folks Godek from Westchester University has done that with some of her Philadelphia Eagle players, where they were able mm -hmm. to take a blood sample shortly after a person cramped. Um, but yeah, that that becomes very difficult to do as well. But underlying your point, Mike, is the fact that if we're being completely fair, uh, you just admitted that you did a whole bunch of fatiguing exercise, mm -hmm. and yet you did cram. Exactly. And so I think to be completely fair, uh, the fatigue theory, as you know, purported by Dr. Martin Schwellness, and uh, I, I would say the evidence is more along the lines of a fatigue or central nervous system altered excitability theory. Mm -hmm. But lots of people get tired. But lots of people don't cramp just because they're tired. So it can't just be fatigue in and of itself either. Because if it were, then a cramp protocol that just exists by doing tons of calf exercises should work every time. Mm -hmm. But it clearly does not. And so why doesn't it? So maybe just getting tired and running a long race, that's not enough for cramping for some people. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a genetic predisposition plus fatigue. And so, again, I think we come back to the same discussion of it's individualized risk factors. 
and identifying what's unique about you that makes you cramp and then targeting those risk factors with interventions. But again, clearly neither theory is perfect. And that's just kind of the frustrating part about science is there's maybe nothing sometimes that perfectly explains every single observation out there. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to cramping, I mean, you talk to a hundred athletic trainers, you're going to find a hundred different explanations for why cramping occurs. And they're probably all correct. They're probably based on observations. And so if you're observing 100 different scenarios of how a cramp occurred, it may just, again, reinforce the point that there might be a hundred different recipes to get a cramp. And so I don't, you know, dis, uh, I don't uh, mistrust people when they tell me, well, I had Alka-Seltzer work or I had mustard work or I had pickle juice work or I had Gatorade work for my athlete with cramping. I don't discount any of that stuff because it's probably true. But how that worked, that's the matter of the big debate and through what physiological pathway did it work. That's what we're still trying to figure out. Real quick, um, Van Ramirez-Miller commented and said, thanks for your research, Kevin. Your contributions have been invaluable. So I assume that's somebody you know. Um, but uh, I don't think so, but thank you. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> one of the things, that, like honestly, I think we've gone over an hour already, and I don't think we've even really covered the the neurological or physiological ways to, to look at a cramp. Um, is that something that we can do quickly or is that something we need to schedule another round? Uh, I mean, if you want to go into the neurology of muscle cramping, that's probably best for a, another day. Um, but again, just, you know, I hate giving very global statements like, oh, just believe me because there's more literature. I've got these letters after my name. Um, definitely don't believe somebody just because they have letters after their name. Uh, so I would encourage everybody, uh, Jeremy, if you have links to uh, some of these research articles that we've discussed, uh, we can certainly uh, give those to people maybe after the podcast gets published or something. But definitely, you know, do some of the investigating on your own. Don't take our word for it just because we got invited to do this podcast. You know, do your own research, read your own uh, on your own time and then come to your own uh, decision making. Read not to contradict, right, Mike? Yep. It's in my email signature. <laughs> so uh, kind of what I'm taking away here is that each cramp and each patient needs to be treated individually, ask good questions, look at all the different factors, and kind of like Kevin was demonstrating earlier, you know, they normally have, say have a threshold of 10, and that's where they start to cramp, but now they didn't sleep well, so they're already starting off the day at a threshold of or, you know, at level three, and then they do a little bit extra exercise. Now they're at a six, and then now they're trying out new shoes. And so now they're at, you know, a 10 and a half, so they start cramping, or they didn't eat, and so, you know, that bumps up, whatever it is. So it could be multiple factors, not just, oh, well, they're out of shape. Oh, well, they didn't hydrate. So we got to continue to look at each individual cramp, at each individual patient, ask good questions. Mike has said he's actually presenting to a group after this about a way to automate this this survey process to where you could just say hey can you ask this these questions and then if they say okay i'm not sleeping well then it'll send them you know articles and it'll also kind of like notify you hey they're not sleeping well some of the things you may talk about them um, so that's something you can also reach out to mike about but just a way to ask really good questions to treat individual patients individually know that too much hydration is actually more detrimental than not enough hydration 
because unless they're in the desert and cannot find water, they're probably not going to die from dehydration, but they can possibly die from overhydration or hypernatremia. So I feel like, I feel like obviously I said we didn't cover up the, cover hardly any of the neurological side of cramping. Uh, and we'll have to come back and pick that up. But do you feel like that kind of sums up what we talked about today, guys? I think so. And I think a lot of it is, I think the reason we don't go too far on the neurological side is like Kevin said, that's a web of, that's a web of information that I think is still being explored. And it's not as, um, um, at least from my experience in common practice in common use. So I think the impact to your everyday athletic trainer, I think really focuses on the more what works and doesn't work from the metabolic side of things. Um, Cause I mean, you and I have both been doing this for a little bit now, and you can definitely see, I think that's where the majority of interventions are originating from. Yeah. And again, to be completely fair, just because you show something does not work. So just because the majority of the evidence maybe suggests dehydration or electrolyte loss does not contribute to cramping, that is not evidence that automatically the other theory is correct. Okay, so just because we've shown that, you know, sodium concentration and cramp history folks versus non does not seem to be different when you have a large sample and you look at multiple sports, that does not automatically mean that the fatigue theory must be correct. And so uh, just caution everybody listening that just because one thing is not supported does not mean automatically all of our chips go to the other theory. And if we do another podcast on the neurological side, we can delve into some of the, the reasons why, you know, maybe it's not just fatigue. You know, like I said, lots of people get tired, but even if you have a cramp history, that doesn't mean automatically you're going to get a cramp. And so what else could there be? Um, a learned response. Or uh, if you're still really curious about this, I know on the NATA's website, I've done a couple of uh, like uh, home study courses on cramping. And I could hashtag shameless plug uh, <laughs> this year at NATA 2019 on Monday evening. I'm doing a mini course, a 16-minute lecture on the common myths surrounding muscle cramping. And so I'll be able to delve into a little bit more of kind of like everybody is susceptible to cramping and uh, sports drinks can help crampers by replacing electrolytes. So some of the things that we've talked about today, we'll cover even in more detail. and I'll show you even more evidence on Monday. That's the week of NATA week. I think that's June 24th. Yeah. whatever the Monday is. I think it's about 5.30 p.m. is when my mini course is. So if you're interested in that and you're going to be in Las Vegas, uh, please register for that. Come and uh, talk to me personally. I'm more than happy to answer questions via email to or feel free to call me. Uh, Jeremy, if you have my contact information and uh, the podcast, too. I'm always happy to talk to people or answer questions via email as well. All right. So, Dr. Miller, somebody wants to get a hold of, what, hold of you. What is that uh, email address or the best way? So my email address is M-I-L-L-E-5-K at C-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. And my office phone number is 989-774-2813. All right. And then, Mike, someone else to get a hold of you. So it's uh, my basically first initial dot last name. So it's M dot M-C-K-E-N-N-E-Y at northeastern.edu and um my office phone is 617-637-5565 so 
<laughs> Dr. Miller said he has a few articles. I think he, I think in his, his bio it says like there's 90 articles that he's been a part of or publications, something like that. So it's not just a few. He's, he's got a lot of a lot of work put in on this stuff. Uh, fantastic resource. And as you you know, as you've been listening for an hour plus, we only covered about half of the what we kind of wanted to cover. So we're gonna have to come back and visit it again. Um, but email and reach out say, Hey, this is my specific question. This is my specific situation. Or, Hey, Mike, can you tell me more about the automated process to ask good questions? Um, one of the things I do, I, I just kind of remembered as we were kind of summing up is the best response is still to stretch, to relieve that, that immediate cramping situation. And then, and then from there, it's going to take 10 or 30 minutes for the fluid intake to occur, but get that stretch in maybe a little bit of pickle juice that also help, uh, just a small volume. Um, so those things have shown to be beneficial, but obviously there's, there's a lot more to it and you go from there. So any, uh, final thoughts, Dr. Miller, Mike, I think this has been uh, good. So thank you again for the opportunity, Jeremy. Uh, this has hopefully been helpful for everybody listening. And again, if you have any other further questions, I know Mike and I are both very agreeable to talk on the phone or try and help as best we can. All right. So for Jeremy Jackson, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science Miller. Again, cramping science Miller for Dr. Kevin Miller. Then that is a wrap. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys.